Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The French philosopher Jack Derrida once described his idea of absolute hospitality as follows. Absolute hospitality requires that I open up my home and that I give not only the foreigner, but to the absolute unknown anonymous other, and that I give place to them, that I let them come, that I let them arrive, and take place in the place I offer them, without asking of them either reciprocity or even their names. Be My Guest, Reflections on Food, Community, and the Meaning of Generosity by Priya Basil uses food, the actions of cooking, eating, and hosting as a vehicle to discuss the meaning of generosity. Drawing on her family's and her own experiences in India, Kenya, and Germany, along with many other cultural references, she discusses what it means to be a host and guest on the personal and the social political level. Priya Basil was born in London to a family with Indian roots and grew up in Kenya, moving to Berlin in 2002. She has published two novels and a novella, as well as numerous essays for various publications, including The Guardian. Her fiction has been nominated for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, the Dylan Thomas Prize, and the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. Basil is also the co-founder of Authors for Peace, a political platform for writers and artists established in 2010. She is also a co-founder and co-editor of the literary political journal Rhinoceros, Europe in Transition. Today, Priya and I talk about the meaning of generosity and how it relates to food. We'll talk about whether there are differences in how people both offer and receive generosity and how these differences connect to our politics. So Priya, perhaps it's best to start with perhaps the biggest of big picture questions about your book. What in your view does it mean to be generous? Well, I think I definitely share the general sense um, of the way this word is understood, that it involves a kind of giving without holding back, a kind of unselfishness. Um, And yeah, it's sort of also tied to abundance when you think of it um, in relation to the table. Um, In my family, that abundance tends to be quite over the top and even exaggerated. Um, But there's another dimension to this word generous, which um, I think is quite important, particularly in these times when we're sort of striving for social justice, racial justice, because I think it's not just about giving, but also for some of us about giving something up in order to achieve the kinds of um, equality um, that we say we want um, in order to have more just and equitable and fair societies. And, and I guess what makes what makes food such a great vehicle to discuss you know, human behavior, social relationships, and the idea of generosity? It's something that we all um, have to do with every single day. Um, So everybody can relate to food. It's part of our ordinary lives. Um, We all need it in order to survive. And the other extraordinary thing is, of course, that to, to simply to look at what's on your plate is to immediately become involved with the histories, cultures um, of other places to to connect to questions of economy and distribution and agriculture. So food really touches on every single subject you can think of. And yet it's something that's really accessible. Um, I feel like it's, it's almost another sort of language that we all understand without needing to um, to learn. I mean, of course, one can always improve one's um, facility with this language through exploring different flavors and cuisines and 
Um, but there's just something very accessible about food. Um, and I think people connect to it very easily. It's very intimate. Um, and it opens up something between us. It's something that we can we can really touch and share and talk about and very kind of passionately engage on. So your book focuses on perhaps like kind of three distinct places, you know, India, Kenya, and Germany. Could you tell us a bit about your personal history or your family's history kind of in these different places? So my family um, is Indian um, in origin, and um, they moved to East Africa um, during the British Empire, as many um, South Asians did. Um, and my family went to work on the railways in Kenya and Uganda. And, um, and uh, so actually, when Kenya became independent, my parents ended up on and their families ended up moving to the UK. And I was actually born in London, but my parents moved back to Kenya when I was um, a year old. So I grew up there. And um, so this is in the 1970s, late 70s. I was born in 1977. And um, Kenya became independent from um, the United Kingdom in uh, 1963. So we're talking about a time which is kind of very close to that colonized period. And so still carried traces of it um, in, in very strong ways. And one of those was that the society was still very segregated when I was growing up. So um, the Indian community kept very much to itself. Um, the, the white community and um, the black Kenyans, there was very little interaction between them, um, except, of course, where more wealthy families had um, help in the house um, in different ways. And then um, there were black Kenyans who were sort of part of your daily life. Um, but it definitely wasn't a relationship of equals. And so um, I grew up in this in this country where it was quite clear to me that something wasn't right, but um, somehow I wasn't, it took me a long time to be able to articulate what that was. Um, and yet within the Indian community itself, there was so much diversity. So um, my family was Sikh and we had a lot of Muslim friends, Hindu friends, and um, we all gathered around food um these were every every kind of meeting was an occasion where food played a big role and so from very early on um food played a really I, I saw that it played a very important part in how people were able to come together um i think this also had something to do with the fact that there weren't so many other cultural activities available to people in kenya at that time i mean people went on a lot of safaris but in terms of you know, things like cinema, theater, um, museums, other things that you might do together. Um, and of course, there's a lot of outdoor, outdoor activities, sports and things, but there weren't so many other things to do. I think the culture of food was one of the strongest things that people used to express themselves and to connect with other people. And so throughout my childhood, big gatherings with lots of people uh, were kind of the defining way of getting together. And what what I noticed, though, was that even though food brought us all together, um, it also revealed the differences between this community that sort of looked quite homogenous and the same. And I write in my book about one incident uh, with my father 
where, you know, whenever we had um, Muslim friends come over to eat, they wouldn't eat the meat in our house because it wasn't halal. And this would always really offend my father. And he'd be sort of ranting and railing afterwards about how he wasn't going to invite them again. And he was never going to go there and he was never going to eat their food. And then, you know, a few weeks later, we'd be driving to their place and he'd be swearing that he wasn't going to touch any of their meat. But then by the time we were at the table, he would be tucking in, having seconds, saying how great it was. And so on the one hand, the food managed to seduce him, uh, you know, to sort of get over his prejudices and, and his impulses to, to sort of hold back. And on the other hand, you know, uh, fr- from the side of our Muslim friends, they, for reasons of faith, um, you know, didn't couldn't make that same leap on our side, and so so these kind of tensions and these differences were there, despite the fact that um, you know the Indian community as a whole seemed to kind of stick together and and be very much um, yeah uh, of a piece, and um, so so these impressions really stayed with me. I think even later when I went to study in the UK. Um, and my relationship to the UK was also a sort of strange one in the sense that um, when I was growing up, it was still the sort of place of aspiration and the kind of role model. Um, I think I was still very much also in this colonized mindset of of thinking, you know, all the best things happened in Great Britain. Um, and, um, and that, to, to a degree, persisted, I think, until I, I moved to Germany and started to um, to look at the past differently, partly because um, Germany, because of its own really awful history, nasty history, and the Holocaust has a different um, has has had a very explicit way of dealing with its past. And so I live in Berlin, and it's a city where everywhere you go, there are memorials to um, the murdered Jews, the Roman Sinti, homosexual victims. It's it's really a city where there's a landscape of memory and of things that were went wrong and which must be kind of remembered and um, and not repeated. And I started to think about the UK and how all these colonial crimes um, that I had never learned about in school and then later become aware of were just not marked anywhere in the public um, landscape and and what that meant. And this made me look back at my Kenyan childhood in different ways too. And so this kind of moving between places, I think it illuminated for me different aspects of um, myself and my past and the histories to which I was connected. Um, And if there was one constant um, across this, because, I mean, these are also painful revelations and difficult ones to grapple with. um, But the one constant across all the moves was the fact that everywhere, you know, people come together over food. And that this expression of oneself and one's um, wish to be with others around a table um, was something, even though it happened very differently. um, I mean, as I said, these huge gatherings in Kenya where it was always a little bit chaotic, a little bit sort of over the top, unexpected guests coming, sometimes people coming with three or four extra people who weren't announced. This was really the norm, whereas um, my experience of dinner parties in Germany is, is much more... Um, somehow, yeah, contained and um, uh, less messy. Um, but nevertheless, the the table has remained a space around which um, people love to come together and talk and share. Um, and then around that, there are all these other 
difficult and um, in some cases, as in, as in the UK, rather unaddressed histories and um, connections that, uh, that are not discussed, but which are really influencing the way we are at the table. So the fact that in Kenya, you know, it was always such a homogenous group of us. Um, and I mentioned that my family is Sikh. And I remember that we always went to the temple um, and my family is not especially religious, but there were just certain occasions, let's say three or four times a year where we went. And one of the traditions in, in Sikhism is the idea of the langar, the community kitchen. Um, and the idea is that anybody can volunteer to cook in this kitchen and anybody's welcome to come and partake of the meal. And my grandfather told me about this. I think I might have been eight or nine years old. And I was really stunned by this idea even then um, that this was an open invitation. Anybody could come. And what really struck me was that if this was the case, how come there were only ever other Indian Sikhs at the temple eating? Um, And, you know, nobody could really answer this question. Um, And much later when I was writing this book, and thinking about this question of who is welcome, um, this the, I remembered the langar and that experience of this apparent open invitation, and yet the kind of closeness of what really took place. And I sort of thought about how, in a sense, this European Union in which I was now living somehow corresponded to that in the sense that there are all these very high ideals of equality and open borders and uh, at the same time, it's very clear that um, this is not available to everybody and that the fortification of Europe's outer borders um, means that so many people, you know, basically die in the Mediterranean um, in order that those of us within the Union can live, you know, very privileged lives. Um, and this sort of yeah, this is one of the discomforts that I grapple with in the book, that this idea of who is welcome and how um, is something that continues to be, I think, one of the most pressing questions at the heart of who we are and how we want to share this world or not with others. So so there, there are a few things in your answer I'm, I'd, I'd like to respond to um, and ask further questions on. I mean, but the first maybe is about your experience with the longer. And I guess, I think, I think we've all come across, you know, in our, in our daily lives, whether personally or, you know, as, as, as political beings, um, come across things where, as you said, things are technically open to all. It'll say in the, in the letter of the invitation or the letter of the law that open to all, anyone can join, anyone can take part. But in practice, due to, um, you know the attitudes of those who are there, the image that's that's kind of presented um, in practice, kind of just putting that out there passively is not enough to actually bring in the more diverse group of people, the 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 population that actually crosses boundaries. Um, I guess kind of if I could get your thoughts on that particular, like it's different between like kind of I'm going to make up some terms. I like guess kind of passive generosity and a more kind of active engagement, more active generosity. Is, is this something that you've come across in thinking about these questions? I think it became more most striking to me in Germany in 2015, when um, many refugees arrived in Europe, mainly from Syria because of the war there, 
but also from um, other countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan. And nobody in Europe um, was willing to accept these people. Uh, well, almost nobody. Um, and then at one point, um, Angela Merkel said that Germany's borders were open and that people, these people could come here. And, um, and I think Sweden also received um, some refugees. But in general, there were just a few little um, points in Europe that were sort of actively ready to um, welcome these people who had fled um, you know, atrocities and war and all kinds of horror and, and really needed somewhere um, where they could find safety and, and uh, continue their lives. And um, so having been somebody who had always moved quite easily between different places, I mean, just because I had a British passport, you know, it was uh, it, it was really sort of almost um, an unquestioned act that I went from Kenya to the UK and then to Germany. Um, and for the first time, I felt like I was in a society which had to be open towards other people coming. And having enjoyed this privilege, you know, without even thinking twice about it, um, it seemed to me that the only the only way to kind of um, to accept this privilege was um, to somehow not uh, not exclude anybody else from that privilege. Um, and I, I have uh, what I, I write about in the book is that this all these people coming it was a tremendously moving um, experience to witness the society, the scenes of welcome at train stations. I'm sure people still remember um, images from then, um, and uh, there was this real kind of euphoria um, almost um, for a short while that um, you know we are a society that is open and welcoming. And, um, and it was very, it was kind of exhilarating to be part of that. And yet, I, I confess in the book that I also felt a kind of uncertainty and a kind of doubt and perhaps a little bit of fear about what, what it would mean. Because um, as an immigrant in Germany myself, I had sort of understood myself in a certain way, I guess. And I sort of felt a bit special also for being um, somebody from somewhere else. And I remember having this thought and thinking, oh, but who will I be if there's so many other people from everywhere here? Like, you know, maybe I won't be so interesting anymore or, or nobody will, my opinion won't matter to anybody. And, and at the same time, there was this kind of real um, sort of uneasiness about having such thoughts as well. And, um, and I think that in moments of kind of tremendous change, having doubt, having fear, having insecurity is not unusual and is maybe not even anything that uh, is, is really terrible. I think it's a natural reaction to something that um, is going in a direction you hadn't an anticipated. Um, although perhaps if I had been paying more attention, I, I would have anticipated it. But I think it's what we do with those feelings um, that's important. And my response was to really engage with um, one of the many um, civil society grassroots initiatives um, that came about in response to the arrival of these, in that first day, there were approximately 800,000 refugees that came. And, um, and I became a co-founder um, of one NGO called Wir machen das, we're, we're doing it, uh, which started to work with these um, newcomers and uh, basically in an, to, to give the artists who arrived a means of kind of finding a community and 
um, and continuing their work um, in this new environment. And Viamakandas uh, is still going and it's kind of won different awards and I'm now on the board. But this act of engaging and kind of um, dealing with doubt by, um, by confronting and, and finding myself amongst people who are really committed to this effort of thinking about how can we live together better in these um, in these circumstances which are actually not going to change I mean the the conditions of the world um, as they are with the climate crisis um, with economic pressures um, with the kind of unworked through colonial uh, past um, mean that people are going to be on the move and um, we we have to find better ways of um, dealing with that and not just thinking we can keep people out. And so so this this possibility to engage that I had, and I know not everybody has that possibility, um, really opened up a lot for me and sort of dispelled the anxieties um, because I saw how enriching it was that that um, uh, that, the, that these people came to the society and and kind of brought so many other kinds of experiences. And, and um, and knowledges and and ideas, and Vimakanas was just one of thousands of of um, little initiatives that began at that time. And so there was this sense in which a society can be really activated by something that comes um, unexpectedly from outside. Um, and I know that there have been other political developments since then. Uh, I mean, the, the 2015 2016 is is quite a kind of landmark moment in political history in the sense that we had the start of many populist movements, nationalistic movements, anti-immigrant. Um, but uh, my sense is that those currents were always there, but they became more conspicuous, also using um, this moment as an excuse to sort of amplify fears and, um, yeah, try and resist what I think is unavoidable, the fact that we have to figure out how to share this one world that we have. So I'd, I'd like to go back to kind of talking again about about um, you know food and again the, the acts of cooking mm. and hosting and and um, and some of the personal stories you bring up in your book. Um, I think I, I'd like to start with maybe your uh, quick discussion of recipes. Um, you know, I think you 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 note that your that your grandmother and I'm going to quote from your book: requests for recipes were never obliged. Uh, Momji involved a repertoire the repertoire of tactics for rebuffing them. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's kind of like it seems like recipes and perhaps the uh, the uh, jealous guarding of them are a way for people to kind of preserve their their um, their 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 own culinary power, their own culinary authority, especially in scenarios where you know the and I in this case probably primarily women may not have had much power outside of that space. Yeah, this was something I really came to realize about my grandmother, Mumji, um, as you say. Um, I, I mean, I do agree that there's something incredible about recipes. And I write in the book about how they're a form of open source. Um, you know, maybe maybe the original open source and that they can be passed around, shared, adapted. And um, they really somehow thrive on this, too. Um, and Mamji is very particular in the sense that she's she's an amazing cook, and 
like many women of her generation, there were not so many options available to her for her to express herself, not so many arenas in which she could excel. And so the kitchen really became her domain. And um, I think that she really began to use food as a kind of weapon in self-defense and partly because, as I write in the book, she, she has a I won't give it away, but she has a kind of troubled history and a secret that she brings with her from India, uh, which everybody finds out about. But her way of somehow um, defending herself against the past is to cook up a present that is so delicious and seductive that nobody can say a word against her. And um, and so, you know, she, she didn't give her recipes away because I realized only years later that this was her way of ensuring that you had to come back to her, to her table, to eat something if you really wanted it. You know, you weren't going to have the luxury of making it for yourself or getting someone else to make it for you. Um, and and this was really interesting to me, this idea that hospitality could somehow have this hostile aspect to it of really, you know, protecting something or ensuring that, you know, certain affections and certain longings could only be fulfilled in one place. Um, so to be at Mamji's table was on the one hand to be totally indulged because she cooked so much and so well. And on the other hand, it was a bit oppressive because she was constantly putting pressure on you to eat more than you wanted. And, you know, oh, no, but there's one more thing. And it was just a, a, sometimes a, almost a kind of ordeal to to cope with the abundance that was set before you and the pressure to compliment because, you know, she, she did it because she just wanted this exp- all those sounds of appreciation um, and, and nobody was ever allowed to help her in the kitchen because, you know, that would mean that the praise couldn't be all hers. Um, and uh, there are actually many very good cooks in my family. Um, I think Mumji's influence really extended. And my mother's a fantastic cook as well. But my mother had a very different way of hosting. And somehow I, I found myself stuck between these two poles. So um, whereas Mumji was really sort of over the top and a bit slapdash and, and nothing had to be perfect, but it had to be, you know, really, um, it had to be a lot uh, with my mother, she, she actually founded a finishing school in um, in Kenya called Lady Sheik, which she ran. And so her idea of hosting was really that everything should be beautifully presented and perfectly ordered and everything has to happen in a certain way. And of course, she had to really look the part. And, um, and so this is also a, a kind of very particular idea of femininity and the role of women. And um, uh, as a feminist, I, I was somehow really caught between these two poles of, you know, trying to please people and trying to get approval from others. Um, and I, I still really suffer from this from this pressure to um, to be, um, yeah, to be nice and to um, to make others feel comfortable. And of course, that is part of the role of hosting, I think, to to make different kinds of people feel comfortable together. Um, but for a long time, I would always kick my husband under the table to, you know, if I felt like a discussion was getting too heated, um, I just kind of wanted harmony to rule. And I really had to train myself over the years to accept that, you know, other people who are around the table also have responsibility for making sure it all goes well, that as a host, kind of, you, you can set up the, the occasion and provide all the fair and and in that sense, help to create a wonderful atmosphere. But, um, you know, you, you can't control everything that happens around and, and you shouldn't either. And so uh, I think 
it's this is always the case with family traditions that I think they're so deeply rooted in one um, that you're perhaps never completely free of them. And um, so I'm still kind of working out a way to 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 have a kind of abundant table without being totally over the top like Mumji, and uh, and to have guests where you know people feel at home and feel at ease, um, but where I'm not sort of so fixated on the idea of everything being a certain way and and you know that everything being to- totally harmonious the whole time um and i guess yeah that's that's part of the the kind of challenge of hospitality in a certain sense that um on the one hand this kind of unconditional aspect to be open to be sort of um really welcoming of whatever might happen and at the same time to have certain boundaries at least for yourself to know that, you know, I, I'm not going to, um, yeah, to, to, to kind of ruin or undo myself in the effort to make other people happy. Well, as a, as a, as a neurotic host myself, especially after a glass of wine, I very much sympathize with the, with, with the, with the drive to make sure everything's perfect and just eating someone to say it's okay it's relaxed the guests have a responsibility too Um, i'm so glad to hear it's not just a female thing that's that's also reassuring well it's all for some reason it only triggers after i've had a glass of wine it's 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 very strange um (laughs) speaking i mean mean, speaking of of drawing questions from my own personal experience of hosting i guess i had a quick question as well about the about the um about the symbolic power of food um i mean you you mentioned this a little bit in terms of um you know, at, at least on like the the grand political scale, it's things like um, uh, dietary restrictions, whether religious or otherwise, and, and um, whether or not you know accommodating them on the national level, whether or not it's like it's it's serving it's serving pork in German schools with large numbers of Muslim children. There, so there's questions of kind of symbolism on on the on the national scale, but I guess also on the on the personal scale um, as well. And to bring in my own personal example. Um, times when I've co-hosted Thanksgiving parties and whether or not the food needs to be quote unquote holiday appropriate. Um, and so I guess we can just kind of share your thoughts about, about kind of what, what the food we make and the food we serve um, when we're hosting, um, I guess, where do you see the, the kind of symbolic power of those choices coming from? Yeah, that's such a good question. And um, it sort of, I think captures the essence of how food is so related to identity and self-expression. And so, um, you know, certain choices we make, whether they're kind of religious or ethical, um, they define our ideas of, you know, who we are. So I, I'm vegetarian. And when I, when I first became vegetarian, I found it really awkward. I wasn't, I mean, for me personally, it was fine to eat vegetables, but when other people were coming for, for a meal, I felt so uncomfortable for a couple of years serving them, you know, quote unquote, just vegetables, um, because I just had this idea that they might feel like this wasn't elaborate enough or special enough. Um, and and over the years, I've sort of, I, I've lost that. But I know what you mean. I think that there is something um, which which sort of speaks of kind of respect and um, also honoring somebody if you sort of accommodate or adapt your own um, usual rules and requirements in order to um, create something that, you know, they can have. 
Um, and I think people feel very, very touched and very, very welcomed by a gesture like that. Um, of course, that's, it's a different thing to make those kind of adjustments at your personal table and then at a societal level. What you mentioned about the um, divorced in the German schools and this debate about, you know, because um, uh, it seems so obvious to me when this when this discussion played up, why don't they just serve vegetarian meals and then it's not an issue. Um, but then I realized it, it's about this question of a society is asking, who are we? Who, who do we want to be? Um, you know, and the idea that somehow identity could be contained in a sausage seems really absurd. Um, and at the same time, I think it just speaks to the way that, um, you know, food holds so much of culture and traditions and identity. And I think that's also why we, we, we cling to it. Um, and the funny thing, though, of course, with food is that very often if one goes investigating into, you know, the origins of things, so many of the things that we assume are, you know, very quintessentially um, ours. Um, so, I mean, you know, potatoes in Ireland or tomatoes in Italy, um, you trace them back and, you know, they, they're from Latin America. And so, or, or chilies in, in Indian cuisine. Um, I mean, I, never, I didn't realize those also came uh, with the Portuguese from Latin America. And, and before that, um, black pepper was used to give heat. Um, in Indian food. And, and so that actually food is all about exchanges and, um, and sort of histories that were not always easy and, 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 and the changes were not always voluntary. Um, but there's, there's usually a lot more behind the things that we hold as sort of most dear and most, um, most essentially um, us. Um, but that's that's not that's not the first thing that of co- occurs, of course, in the moments when something feels threatened, or or or, or there's a sense that something might be lost. Um, and I, I think that one of the other things that is becoming more of a factor in these discussions is, of course, the effect that the food we eat has on the planet. Um, and for me, the idea of hospitality also extends to you know, how, how we get our food, how we treat the earth. Um, and this has been part of certain cultures, traditions, um, indigenous traditions and animist cultures for, for, you know, from the beginning, this recognition of a kind of reciprocity that has to be there um, for, for all parts of um, the, the sort of life cycle to really thrive. And that's definitely something that is very out of sorts right now. Um, and I mean, these kind of questions, of course, they bring a sort of heaviness to, to, to you know, our daily lives and our gatherings. Um, but I don't know, I think that we, ha- we have a kind of duty to consider them and where possible to make um, choices that are, better or more sustainable um but i I mean i I say all this and i I don't want to sound like really worthy because of course i don't manage to make sustainable choices all the time and i I write about unconditional hospitality but i don't at all feel myself up to the task Uh, i think part of writing this book was also to kind of set a different vision in the world um and a different way of orienting oneself um, because I think we live in a time where 
there are sort of growing currents of exclusion of xenophobia, of racism, um, and nationalism. And um, so I wanted to to write about something and to 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 imagine with others um, a possibility of this unconditionality, this radical openness, um, simply to set against these other ideas of defining ourselves ever more narrowly and um, these sort of really reductive ideas of who belongs and where. Um, and I, this idea of unconditional hospitality from Derrida, as, as you mentioned, and also relating back to the Sikh Langa, and it exists in many different traditions and cultures. Um, it just seems to me a really valuable and necessary one um, at, at a time when um, I think we need, we need other visions of how we might live in this world. And even if it seems impossible, and it is impossible, I mean, Derrida himself acknowledges that. Um, nevertheless, I think it has a value um, as a sort of compass, maybe, for, for how one might think in the moments when one sort of wants to retreat and, and hold back. Um, but just for me, it's a kind of call to to just try again, to just open up a little more. I describe um, unconditional ho- hospitality as a horizon. And um, and I think one one moves towards it and it always moves. Um, but it's it's there as a kind of orientation point for me. So I have one more question and it's kind of asking about potentially how your views may have changed since you wrote the book. And obviously the big change has been the COVID-19 pandemic, um, social distancing, gatherings, whether large or of any size, have been strongly discouraged due to you know public health reasons. Um, but it also seems like many of us are, are starving for relationships that these gatherings may bring. Everyone seems to be waiting for the waiting for when restrictions are lowered or when everyone's vaccinated, they can immediately start hosting and eating together again. I, I guess how has has the pandemic changed how you think about? these questions about food and hosting and generosity? Yeah, it's definitely thrown a whole new angle on this idea of hospitality. And that's so fascinating because you spend years, you know, thinking about something and you have a certain kind of knowledge about it. And then a major world event happens, which, um, yeah, shifts that understanding. I think what, what the pandemic has made clear is that this particular way of gathering around a table together, you know, many people with food, there is something really special about it. I mean, it's such a sensuous experience. I think all the senses are addressed and, 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 and it's very intimate. I mean, to think what now when I think about, you know, people using the same spoons to help themselves, like taking a sip from each other's glasses, breaking this, uh, you know, a bit from the same bit of bread. I mean, these intimacies, this physicality, I think it leads to diff- a different way of interacting with each other and different kinds of discussions, especially where people don't know each other so well. And as you say, so many of us um, have really realized how how precious that is and how much we miss it. And at the same time, I think that the notion of how we practice hospitality has been expanded. So even just you know observing the regulations of keeping a distance and wearing a mask. Um, I think this is a kind of way of showing consideration for fellow citizens. 
and they may 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 feel kind of cold and clinical, but nevertheless, um, I think it is an act of hospitality. Um, and one of the things that I I discovered when I was researching writing my book was that the English word hospitality it comes from the Indo-European word gosti, which meant host, guest, and stranger all at once. And I think that was so. It, it was such a kind of extraordinary moment for me to discover that because I think that those are the three roles through which we move all our lives, host, guest, and stranger, in all our relationships in different contexts. Um, and I think the pandemic has somehow emphasized that for me. Also because, you know, we, we walk around with our faces half covered and um, we're not always immediately recognizable um, in the usual ways. Um, we're all somehow a little bit estranged from each other and the ways that we have to be are not the usual ways we can be. And yet we are called upon to be sort of more patient, um, more trusting, more generous um, in different ways. Like not, not to look at every person and imagine them as a possible vector of virus, as a threat. Um, I, I remember that feeling right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was so awful to, to look at your fellow, you know, citizens and human beings and have this thought that, oh, my goodness, you know, they might infect me. And so, um, so sort of, I think the pandemic made me sort of really think about these questions differently. Um, like, I think it moved, on the one hand, the absence of the table situation um, emphasized the importance of that particular way of getting together. And at the same time, um, I realized that there are, so many other ways in which we can um, practice hospitality. And I think the state too um, was forced to practice hospitality differently. I mean, we, 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 we realized the importance of the welfare state and um, protections, financial help for people who have been really severely affected by the pandemic in different ways. These are all different ways in which um, hospitality has played out or not in this time. And um, and so for me, the notion has become even more important as a way to think about um, our relations to each other. And one of the things that I also remark on in the book is that for me, um, you know, maybe um, maybe being grown up, I say, is to be more host than guest, um, to take care more than to be taken care of. And I think this notion of care has also become much more pronounced during the pandemic, um, that we are called upon, all of us, to take care more. And that is not an easy thing. And I think I have so much more appreciation for the people in society who have long done that work. Um, and maybe more of us do too, because we've had to, um, we've all had to step up in a certain degree and take on more of that caring work. And so um, even though there are many hardships in this, in this time, I think that um, this possibility to care for each other differently, to show consideration, um, could even be regarded as a kind of gift. Um, and I, I don't want to say that lightly because um, I, I, I know how much suffering there is um, because of the situation. And, um, and, you know, 
it's it's kind of it's it's really sobering even to realize how helpless one is that you know there's so many things you just can't fix and can't um, alleviate at all um, but I think the practice of being more um, patient and generous and caring towards others in in the ways that we can um, in the small ways that we can uh, I think that makes so much difference at this time you realize how much people need and appreciate that especially because we can't just sit and eat a meal together um, just spending a long time time on the phone with somebody listening uh, becomes, you know, a really gracious act. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely shifted. This time's definitely shifted my sense of hospitality and confirmed for me that it's a really fruitful and um, beautiful way to consider life and our relationships to each other. So with that, Thank you for listening to our interview with Priya Basil, author of Be My Guest, Reflections on Food, Community, and the Meaning of Generosity. One actual final question. Um, Priya, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Well, um, my website, it's a good um, reference point, priyabasil.com. And um, what's next for me? Well, I have a a new book coming out um, in... um, a couple of weeks here in Germany. Um, it, the, so in, the English title is In Us and Now, Becoming Feminist. And it sort of picks up on, it, it follows a little bit in the style of um, Be My Guest in that it's this kind of hybrid of, of memoir, philosophy, social analysis, and, um, and stories. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm quite excited about that. And otherwise, I, I also just made a film essay at the end of last year, which people can watch on, from my website called Locked In and Out, which again picks up on some of the themes we, we discussed, looking at hospitality in a different way in, in a historical sense in terms of which histories we are willing to host or not. So I think this idea of hospitality and being kind of open and which communities we we are part of and how we show solidarity this continues to be um, a line through my work Um, I'm interested to see where else it might lead and how else it might express itself so you can follow me Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon that's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N you can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews essays interviews and excerpts Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you subscribe to listening to the Asian Review Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends. If you want to support us, continue to interview authors writing in, around, and about Asia. Follow me or the Asian Review Books to keep up to date on who's coming up next on the podcast. But before then, Priya, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.